We're continuing to work through Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. This is Luke's truncated version of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is longer in Matthew's Gospel. Um, But Luke is focusing, I think, on some of the most important parts of what Jesus said, and so we're working through, arguably, the most famous part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount this week. Um, We're looking at verses 37 to 42. If you didn't grab a notes sheet on the way in, I encourage you to do that. The notes sheet are back on the music stand by the door, and no one will think you're weird if you get up while I'm reading the scripture to grab a notes sheet. I'll read the text for us, and then we'll study it. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is the gospel of the Lord. And as we've been working through Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, we've been working over this idea that as Jesus preaches to us, he is trying to flatten all of us. He's giving us God's law in 4K clarity to let us know that though we might think we are pretty good or that we are least better than most, we actually all fall short of the glory of God. And he does that for two reasons. First of all, it's of course to draw our eyes back to our only hope for salvation, which is that Jesus paid it all. But it's also to functionally free us in this life from all the things that enslave us, all of the the standards that either we impose on ourselves or culture imposes on us that demand that we do better and try harder, be something, be somebody. He's trying to free us from that and let us know you can't do that. And in this section, for my money, Jesus turns up the heat unlike any other section of this sermon. He is really going to try to leave us no possible out other than to fall on our knees and plead for God's mercy. So this section starts with uh, arguably the most famous words that Jesus ever said. Judge not and you will not be judged. I'm sure you've heard those words before, even if you didn't memorize Jesus' Sermon on the Mount or Sermon on the Plain. The problem is, of course, that everyone gets these verses wrong. Everyone has an idea of what Jesus means, but it really, frankly, I don't think is correct. And the reason for that is we're not actually willing to just let Jesus say what he said. You may have heard this. Someone will use uh, do not judge, judge not, as their sort of get out of jail free card. Right? Someone will challenge them on something in their life, their values, their behavior, and they'll say, you know, this doesn't line up with well, what God's word says or what is good behavior, and someone will reply, you can't judge me, right? Jesus said, judge not, so you can't judge me. Now, of course, that is absolutely wrong, and I'll show you why in just a couple seconds. But I think it's worth taking some time to consider like, why that is such a common reaction. Did you know that statistically, judge not, and you will not be judged, 
is the most often quoted verse of the Bible in the Western world. Not John 3.16, not Genesis 1.1, judge not and you will not be judged. That is the most often quoted scripture in the Western world. And can you think of possibly why? If you want my hypothesis, it's because Western Christianity has made it really obvious to the rest of the world what is bad behavior. We're really good at the thou shalt nots. We know how to let everybody know what's good and what's bad. And so, as a reaction to that, the Western world has searched the scriptures to find an answer to our constant criticism of their behavior. And so they found this verse. Judge not, and you will not be judged. And the reason I want us to consider that is because that doesn't make a logical sense or theological sense. Like, just logically, if we are an organization that wants people to become part of our organization, and we have something that the rest of the world doesn't have, shouldn't we be putting it out there? The rest of the Western world is telling every single person every day, do better, try harder, you are not enough. Be skinnier, be smarter, be richer, be more successful, have better relationships, have a better body, live longer, all these things that the world constantly is pounding us with. And we have a different message. We have, it is finished. You are paid for. And yet how long are we on law with the rest of the world? Like we're completely tone deaf to the fact that everyone hears exactly what we want to say every single day from every other part of their life. We could have a different message. But how often do we use it? And it doesn't make theological sense either, right? Because what's the main message of Christianity? It's not do better, try harder. It's the forgiveness of sins. It's that Jesus has been righteous on your behalf to give you his righteousness, to take your sin, to free you from your shame and your guilt, and to give you eternal life, all because he is gracious and not because you are good. And yet how often is the message that we communicate as an organization or as individuals to the rest of the world that what it means to be a Christian is to clean up your life and be a little bit better than you were yesterday? Now, of course, this doesn't excuse the fact that a person who uses do not judge as a get-out-of-jail-free card is not using the scripture properly. And you can see that if you just look at what Jesus says. Do not judge. What does it mean to judge? Well, what does a judge do in a courtroom? He declares things guilty or not guilty, innocent or, or not innocent, good or bad, right? Judging is not exclusively saying something is bad. It is evaluating things and seeing if something is better or worse or good or bad or right or wrong. And so it is actually impossible for us to stop judging. When you wake up in the morning and you think that a warm cup of coffee would be a pleasant thing to start your day, you're being super judgmental, right? We're always judging. And so what Jesus cannot possibly mean is that we should not judge at all because that is simply impossible, The problem is, though, that I think Christians get this wrong as well for the exact same reason, just in a different way. They look at these words, do not judge, and they start to try to think of how they possibly can pull that off. Because remember, we said last week, one of the ways that 
that people, Christians, often approach the Sermon on the Plain is as sort of a, a divine ladder that they can start to climb. And if they can figure out the workarounds or nuances or loopholes, they can start to be a little bit better than they were yesterday, rather than seeing that Jesus is trying to eviscerate all of their self-salvation projects. So Christians will start to say, okay, well, do not judge, but only in certain situations. Or do not judge unless, of course, Christians get this wrong just like non-Christians get this wrong because they're not willing to look at what Jesus actually says. So what is he doing? What is he saying? Basic statement of fact. Do not judge, and you won't be judged. Do not condemn, and you won't be condemned. But the narrative that's running behind that is but I always do, right? I can't stop judging. I would like to believe that I could not be judged because I know that if I was going to be judged, I would be judged wanting, but here's the problem. I can't stop judging. And I would rather not be condemned because operating somewhere in the back of my psyche is this realization that I'm not good enough, but here's the problem. I can't stop condemning people. I mean, ask yourself, can you go one day without judging other people or condemning them for their behavior? You can't. And so what Jesus is exposing in us is this inability to be anywhere near perfect. We cannot pull it off. But then Jesus starts to go a little farther with us. He starts to find all the little nooks and crannies of our heart that we might still be holding on to and helps us realize how deep this rabbit hole goes. Later in this text, he says, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So what he's saying is, when you judge, which you inevitably do, which I know you don't want to do because you'd rather not be judged, but you still do, you should measure your judgment of another person against your own judgment of yourself. But we don't, do we? We find it really easy to create the double standard of judgment We'll judge other people by one standard and ourselves by another. When we're looking at someone else's behavior, we become really good prosecuting attorneys. But when we look at our own behavior, we suddenly become defense attorneys. We change the standard, right? If someone's, let's just say, late for an appointment that you set. Well, you don't care about me. You can't seem to get your life in order. You should put it on your schedule. How could you? This is important. But when we're late, oh, well, normally I have more time to get that done. It was just a weird day. Traffic caught me. We have all sorts of excuses for ourselves, but not for other people, do we? We're not willing to to judge by God's standards. We judge with a double standard, don't we? I heard an interesting study recently um, about how people take prescription drugs. Uh, So, when a a person gets a a prescription from the doctor, about two-thirds of people will actually go to the pharmacy and get it filled. One-third will just not get the the prescription filled at all. And of those two-thirds of people who will go to the pharmacy and get their prescription filled, only about half of those people will take their prescription properly. Half of them will, will miss days or take the wrong dosage or whatever the case may be. But did you know how well people do at giving other people or even their pets prescriptions? They're nearly perfect. They fill almost all of the prescriptions and they almost always give perfect dosage. Why? 
because we are naturally so much more concerned with everyone else's problems rather than our own. We are always concerned with everyone else's shortcomings rather than our own. We judge by a double standard. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He tells this parable then, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? And you can imagine this, right? One blind guy holding another blind guy's arm and leading him and you know how it's going to end up. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying not only do we judge with a double standard, but we can't even see our own sin when we judge with that double standard. We are naturally blind to our own sin. You know this, if you've ever had a close relationship of any kind, a marriage, a friendship, there's been that moment when that person points out that thing that you do that you never noticed that you do. We're blind to ourselves. And Jesus is pointing this out to us. Like, it would be one thing if we would just judge by a double standard, but the fact is, even when we have a double standard, we don't even see all of the sin that is deep inside us. I know I've said this before, but it's worth pressing on us again and again. The hardest doctrine of Christianity to believe is the total corruption of the human being. We can get around this idea that maybe there's a God out there who's pretty benevolent and might be kind to us, but to admit that I am the worst sinner I know, that's hard. Like the Apostle Paul, after planting more churches than many of us have ever been to, after being the author of half of the New Testament, he says, I'm the worst sinner I know. And how many of us could do that? Like if there was a leaderboard, it's like my name, Hitler, Mao, Stalin, fill in the blanks. Like I'm higher than them on that leaderboard. Are we willing to say that? If not, we're blind. And Jesus points that out to us. But he doesn't stop there. He then says, the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. And so what he's insinuating here is that if you were to listen, from me, listen to me, your teacher, you would not judge this way. But the fact is, you listen to everyone other than me about how to judge the world. How many of us learn how to judge the world from what the news cycle tells us, from what Instagram shows us, from what Facebook, what Facebook is telling us? We judge everything based on some other standard other than God's standard. And the results are obvious. We've become fully trained worldly judges who judge by double standards and can't even see our own sin as we do it. And so Jesus finishes with this parable. You've heard it before. Why do you look at the speck of dust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and yet you fail to see the plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take that plank out of your own eye, and then you can help your brother remove the speck from his eye. And the point of the parable is very clear. I mean, Jesus says it right here, right? You hypocrite. We are by nature hypocrites. We want to believe that we are pretty good and that everyone else is pretty bad. But the fact of the matter is we are so blind to our own sin and can't even judge it because we've been taught by everybody but Jesus how to judge sin, that we are like a person who has a plank sticking out of their eye, trying to help someone get a speck out of their own eye. And we end up smacking people in the process. Uh, this whole thing is what Jesus called, or what the, the theologians call self-righteousness. If you've heard that term before, maybe an easier, easier way to understand it is the idea of a self-salvation project. Like that it's, it's this thing that I'm working at, this, this effort that I'm putting in in order to make myself okay. 
to make myself good enough, to justify my own existence. This is self-righteousness, and we, we do this most often by looking around at everyone else and judging everyone else rather than by God's standard because that's easier to build up a case for ourselves than if we would judge by God's standard. And so let me press you a little bit on this idea of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness shows up in a thousand and one different ways, but I've put together, I believe it's six different categories for you to think about today. And the first way is one-to-one comparison. So we will look at other people and we will compare our traits or our abilities or our wealth or our success or whatever it is to somebody else's. And if we are in some way superior to them, then we'll feel good about ourselves. If you consider yourself a relatively morally upright person, it's not because you're judging by God's law, which says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. You're judging by your own judgment of somebody else who seems to be relatively less moral than you. If you think yourself to be pretty successful, it's not because you've actually accomplished anything that anyone's ever going to remember. It's because there's somebody else in your same job or somebody you went to school with or somebody who's about the same age who's not as successful as you are. If you think you're a pretty good parent, it's not because your kids turned out absolutely perfectly. I hope this isn't news to you, but your kids aren't perfect. It's because you look at some other parents and you say, well, they don't do it the way that I would do it and their kids don't look as good as my kids look, so I'm a pretty good parent. Or if you think of yourself relatively likable, it's not because everyone likes to be around you, sorry. It's because you know somebody who's not as likable as you and you think of yourself as somewhat superior to them. A second way that self-righteousness shows up is this idea of despair when I fail. If you've ever felt despair, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Despair is not sadness. Sadness is feeling like something is not good, right? Despair is feeling like because things are not good, I can't go on. You ever felt that before? It's because you've been confronted with this reality that you're not good enough. Right? You can't keep your kids in the faith. Or you can't keep your marriage together. Or you can't keep the success that you thought you had. You can't have the wealth that you plan to have at this point in your life. Something in your life is not going the way you originally planned it. And so you fall into this despair because your self-salvation project has been smashed. Another way this shows up is the but at least I am scenario. This is similar to -to one-to-one comparison, but what we do is we change the metrics. So we look at another person who is pretty good at something, but then we say, well, I'm good at this thing instead. Right, so that person has a lot of friends, but my friends are closer. That person has a lot of money, but I'm not greedy. That person's really successful, but at least I'm balanced and not a workaholic. And that person, it seems like they're, uh, they're pretty likable, but, I mean, it takes a little bit longer to get to know me. We'll change the metrics so that we can feel good about ourselves, even when somebody else is objectively superior to us in something. Self-righteousness shows up generationally. You ever seen this? Generations will look at each other, and they'll compare themselves to one another to show how superior their generation is. Older generations do this to younger generations. 
They look at young people and they say, you guys don't seem to care about anything that stood the test of time or any sort of history. You guys just go with whatever feels good and you can't seem to hold down a job for more than seven minutes. You take forever to get married. You're on nine different things and you change all of that next month. You don't seem to care about setting up a life that's actually going to be sustainable. It's self-righteousness. You think that you're pretty good because that's the way you live. But young people do this to old people, right? You want us to be like you? To live a life of basically going through the motions? Where everything we do, just because that's what we always did? No, we want something real and relational and transparent and authentic. And because we are, because we show ourselves to be this way, and we know we're not good, we're better than you. What is that? It's self-righteousness. This happens in churches. Inside the church, you'll have the different groups of people who all see different facets of ministry as important and they can't seem to understand why no one else gets on the same page as them. You have the outreach people, right? We got to reach people with the gospel. There are people who are dying and going to hell. We got to put all of our energy into reaching those people. Then you have the discipleship people who are saying, why bring more people into this church if we can't even serve the people that we already have? And you have the children's ministry people. This is the future of our congregation. In 20 years, if we don't invest in these kids, we won't have a congregation. You have the youth ministry people. High school and college are some of the toughest years for Christians. We have to invest in those years to help them. You have the prayer ministry people. Why are we talking about all this? We should just be going to God in prayer. Why is no one praying? You have the men's ministry people. Men are supposed to be the leaders of the congregation and of their families, so we got to invest in men. And then you have the women's ministry people who say, well, the women are so busy and there's so much pressure on them from society, we got to support them. And every one of those little groups, they can't figure out why no one else seems to notice that what they're doing is most important. It's self-righteousness. We do this outside the church, too. As we look at other churches, maybe, we start to become self-righteous about our church. Well, at least our church is one that values the sacraments. We actually teach that baptism forgives the sins and, and that Jesus' body and blood are truly present with the bread and the wine, not like all those other churches. We actually teach the gospel. We don't cloud it with, this is how you need to behave now so that you can be a good Christian. We just give it to you straight, 200-proof gospel, not like those other churches. Or we're one of those churches that does things in a modern way. We're not stuck in the past with all those songs and those words that no one can understand that are way outside of people's culture. Or we're not one of those super modern churches. At least we respect the history of the church and we keep some of these old forms of liturgy and hymns. We're not like those other churches. Now, you can maybe see that self-righteousness goes pretty deep, doesn't it? We are all in a thousand and one ways trying to justify our own existence, comparing ourselves to everyone and everything to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. But don't worry, it goes one step further. We start to become self-righteous about self-righteousness. Like we start to realize all this. We're like, oh man, I am pretty self-righteous. You know what I need? I need like an accountability partner who's going to help me point out my self-righteousness so I can work on that. And then you start doing that and you start to get self-righteous about the fact that no one else seems to notice their own self-righteousness. How come no one else is getting an accountability partner and trying to work on their self-righteousness? At least I'm working on my self-righteousness, not like all those self-righteous people. Do you see the irony in this? It goes so deep. And Jesus wants us to see that. 
We have no escape, brothers and sisters, from the self-righteousness that every one of us has, that self-salvation project that we are constantly working at to make ourselves good enough for Jesus. Now, whenever I write a, a sermon, I'm always looking for the good news. I'm looking for that gospel message in the text. And to be honest with you, it's not in this text. And there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, this is just a snippet of Jesus' sermon. And if you remember, he started his sermon by saying, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry. In other words, he said, here's the type of person that's really going to get the gospel. It's the poor and hungry and needy person. And now I'm going to show you how all of you are poor and hungry and needy. That's the gospel. But in this part of the text, it's not there. And there's probably something healthy about hearing that. That I ought to be flat on my back because I have twisted myself in knots of self-salvation projects. So instead of hearing it from this text, let me take you into another text. Do you remember the story about the woman caught in adultery? It's a story from John 8. This woman is brought in before Jesus by a number of people who apparently caught her in the act of adultery, and she knows, and Jesus knows, and the crowd knows what that means. That means she should be stoned to death. But do you remember what happens? Jesus looks at the the crowd of people and he says, whoever of you is without sin, throw the first stone. And there's certainly something to be learned in that, that people by nature don't judge themselves correctly until it's pointed out to them that they do have sin and they ought not to judge. But what's more important about this story for us today is what Jesus then says to the woman, right? Neither do I condemn you. Jesus can live the law perfectly. He truly could not judge in order to not be judged. He truly could not condemn in order to not be condemned. But instead, he chooses to judge. And he chooses to judge this woman not guilty. And what that necessarily means is, therefore, Jesus must be judged. And you know exactly where that happened. She should have died, but she didn't. And so Jesus did. He died for her sin, and my sin, and your sin. He judged every single one of us not guilty, not because we actually aren't guilty, but because he was willing to take the punishment for, excuse me, for us. The gospel of this text is that though we tie ourselves in knots of self-righteousness, Jesus takes all of those nasty knots upon himself and gives us a perfect, straight obedience to, Jesus, to God's law. If you've ever experienced that moment where you're totally flat on your back, where you have no escape, maybe it's a pastor or a friend or a family member who came to you and pointed out something in your life that didn't line up with God's word and you realized that they were right and you realized you had no excuse. If you've ever felt that moment and then you've received grace, you understand Jesus. That woman, she felt that way. There is no way for her to escape except for the mercy of Jesus. And if you're feeling that right now, that there's no way for me to escape my own sinfulness except for the mercy of Jesus, here's the declaration. You have Jesus' mercy. You have it. So let me finish with this. I love the story of uh, Muhammad Ali on an airplane. You ever heard this story? Muhammad Ali, remember him, he's a famous boxer. Um, he was flying on a plane once, and uh, the captain came over the loudspeaker 
and uh, told the, the cabin to fasten their seatbelts because they were about to go through some turbulence. And so the flight attendants are walking up and down the aisles as they do, and uh, one of the flight attendants knows that Muhammad Ali is not put on his seatbelt, and so she says, sir, would you please put on your seatbelt? And Muhammad Ali, in Muhammad Ali fashion, says, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the flight attendant said, Superman don't need no airplane either. Please fasten your seatbelt. And I love that story, not just because it's funny, but because it exposes in us that all of us think we're better off than we actually are. We actually all kind of think we're Superman. We might think we're not perfectly Superman, but we're a little bit more Superman than everybody else. But we forget. We forget how frail we are. We forget how quickly we are wrecked, how quickly life falls apart. We forget how bad off we actually are. And so we continue to try to convince ourselves that things are okay, that we're doing pretty well. And the way that we do that is by putting our trust in anything other than God. Things far too small to carry the weight of God. We trust in these things to find purpose or value or acceptance. For some, it's how people see them. For some, it's how much they have. For others, it's success. For others, it's how much they know. But all of it is idolatry. And some of you know that when you put your trust in those things, things fall apart. And you know that you have this sense of the pointlessness of it all. Why did I put my trust in that thing or that person? They can't actually satisfy me. Maybe you're feeling that right now. If you're feeling that despair, that there's, in a sense, no reason for you to keep working so hard at everything, then I can tell you exactly why that's happening. It's because Jesus wants to free you. Jesus wants to free you from all of the false definitions of who you are. Let me say that again. Jesus wants to free you from all of your false definitions of who you are. We define ourselves in a thousand ways. The only one that matters is what Jesus thinks of us. Who you truly are has nothing to do with you. We might think it has something to do with my behavior or my status or my family background or how people think of me. It doesn't. Who you truly are has nothing to do with you. And so you are free. You are free to live life knowing that what you truly need, you already have in Christ and no one can take it away from you. Who you truly are has nothing to do with you. Are you willing to admit that you need that? Look, I would love to say that Jesus fully satisfies me, and I'm sure you would too, but he doesn't. If we're honest, Jesus doesn't fully satisfy us, does he? We go out and find a thousand and one things to try to find satisfaction in life because ultimately Jesus doesn't really satisfy us. But here's the good news. You are not saved because Jesus fully satisfies you. You are saved because Jesus fully satisfied God. And I would love to believe that I can surrender all to Jesus, and I bet you would too. But here's the fact. I vice grip so many things in my life that I don't want to give up for Jesus. But thankfully, I'm not saved because I surrendered all to Jesus, but because Jesus surrendered all to God. You will never be able to be free as long as you believe that you're a pretty good person. But as soon as you're willing to admit that you are the worst person, then you can receive the freedom that Jesus gives. Have you ever had this moment where you lose your, your cell phone and you're looking around your house or your office, you're looking in and around and under things, and so you finally say, I can't see, so you pull out a light to, to try to find the phone and you realize that the flashlight that you pulled out to try to find your phone is the flashlight on your phone? You ever done this? 
Maybe I'm the only one. When I think about that happening, I think about what every Christian does every single day. We feel like we don't have God's love, and so we look for it in every single place of our life, even sometimes using the very thing that God has given us, the gospel, in the scriptures to justify finding those things. We use the scripture to be that to-do list, that divine self-help manual to get God's love when all the time we have had it in our hands. It is finished. You are paid for. You are free. Let's pray. God, thank you for setting us free, for setting our eyes on you, for letting us know that we're far worse off than we think we are and far more loved than we can possibly imagine. So rid us of all the self-salvation projects that litter our lives. Let us believe that it is finished and that that message follows us wherever we go. And then give us hearts to judge like you would judge, judging in order to find ultimate forgiveness for another person, to set them free as well. And may our church be a place that is not marked by try, try harder and do better, but by the message that it has all been done for us. We ask that in Jesus' name.